thank you for coming, and, um, and I appreciate your being here, and I'm trying to calm down, but I will at some point during the lecture do that, presumably. Uh, I have lectured, um, I find myself often on YouTube, so I want to try and, um, many of you may have seen a lecture I gave on this subject, and I want to try and be a little bit different um, than that lecture, so that it's new. I try and have different lectures each time I lecture, but that means there'll be some material that I won't cover, introductory material perhaps, but of course the good news is it's all in the book. <laughs> so, okay, well I, I showed a bunch of things at the beginning so you'd have something to read while I was being introduced, which is generally my policy. And um, I run a program at Arizona State University called the Origins Project, and it's called that because origins are by far the most interesting thing. They're at the forefront of all fields, wondering how we got there. And what I want to, um, what I want to do today is, is first set the stage for the mystery that I want to talk about, and then, and then I will... Um, and then I will discuss it. So first I want to put us all in the same wavelength and describe to you the real crazy universe in which we live. This, uh, this is it. I was just saying to students the other day at, at the New College, the Humanities, where I'm lecturing, that, that people in London may not know this, but these are stars. And um, <laughs> in Arizona we see them. Um, uh, but uh, this is the beautiful night sky. And um, the amazing thing about this picture is as beautiful as it would be should you go out in the country and actually see these things is um, that the really important stuff is the stuff you can't see, the stuff between the stars and it's changed completely our understanding of both the past and the present and as I'll describe the future. So the question you have something to tell me? The video link can't hear very well. Can you speak into the mic a bit more? Which mic? This mic or that one? You sure? <laughs> I, suspect it's, I suspect it's this one, in which case they're, as we say, something out of luck where I come from. Um, uh, I will try and speak loudly, but I'm not going to tether myself to that mic. So um, uh, I don't know if you have a technician that can come in and arrange the mic, this mic to actually pr project through there, but you'll come and tell me. You'll take the 10-minute walk over there and come back and tell me. <laughs> Okay, well, this is already fun. Um, in any case, the, the, the question that I want to address is a question that's been around as long as people have been asking questions. It's a question that's become a, a, a profoundly, um, well, I, I hate to apply the word profound to it, a very uh, significant religious question. The question, why is there something rather than nothing? It is generally, in some sense, the last bastion of those who would like to find a place for God now that we've dispensed from him in human evolution, um, the one question is how can you get 100 billion galaxies, each containing 100 billion stars out of nothing? And that certainly seems to require some kind of supernatural shenanigans. And so one way to answer that question is really quite simple. You just, you just write a book and, and it begins this way, in the beginning, and then, <laughs> and then it, it doesn't explain anything about anything. Um, but uh, it, it satisfies some people. But the actual way to do it is not to assume the answer before you know the questions. And so instead, I want to turn back to the real universe and, um, and, try and, uh, and try and use the universe as a guide, which is what science is all about. And I would argue, in fact, that the interesting question is not this one. And I've been debating it a lot with philosophers lately and, and some theologians. Well, I try not to talk to theologians. Um, why questions are not really interesting questions? Why questions really don't make sense? Because they presume purpose. If, if any of you have children, you will know that why questions can become annoying. <laughs> Eventually, the only answer is because. Because they assume purpose in the universe, in fact, or purpose to whatever. Uh, an example that I that I haven't given in the book, although actually I'm giving in the, in the paperback version of this because I've had to deal with, with this question a lot, is um, as a cosmological example, which is uh, from um, Kepler, who asked the question, why are there six planets? And he thought he had a, and it, for him it was a real question because he thought it would reveal the mind of God. And he had a good answer. He said that there are five platonic solids, 
and, in, and around each solid, you can inscribe each of these solids in a sphere, and then if you, those spheres would separate six planets, and since God was a mathematician, everything seemed to work out fine. He understood the mind of God. Now, the problem with that, of course, is we know there are not six planets. There are nine planets, and there are nine planets. <laughs> Pluto will always be a planet for me. My daughter did a project on Pluto when she was in her fourth grade, and I certainly don't intend for her to go back. Have you discovered which one of these is not? Is this? Are you going to tell me how to? They're all working now. They're all working now. Okay. So if you're in the other room and you can hear me shout, we won't hear you, but it'll make you feel better. Um, the. Um, in any case. Uh, where was I? Yes, so there are not six planets, there are nine planets. And, but we know that, that the question, why are there nine planets, of course, is not an interesting question. Because we know that our solar system is one of many solar systems, and many of which have different numbers of planets. What we really want to know is, are we unique? Are we uh, distinguishable? And could we, there be life elsewhere? And so, there, so, so why questions are generally not interesting, which is why philosophers spend most of their life talking about them. Um, uh, so anyway, I want to use the real universe and come back to this picture. And the real universe has, has changed a lot. The first thing I want to remind people of is that in a single human lifetime ago, our picture of the universe was quite different than it was now. 85 years ago or so, 87 years, the universe was both static and eternal. Conventional scientific wisdom suggested the universe was static and eternal, and it contained one galaxy, our own, the Milky Way galaxy. We now know that there are over 100 billion galaxies out there in the universe, so things have changed tremendously. We are like the early map makers, and it's not too surprising that we are surprised. And we are surprised, and it's that surprise that I want to relate to you. I won't go into the discovery of the expansion of the universe, but since this is the London School of Economics, which I assume means that many people here are training to become lawyers, um, <laughs> I wanted to present this slide because it does give me hope for humanity. Because this is the person who convinced the world that the universe was expanding, uh, Edwin Hubble, by observations I wish I had time to talk about. But for me, the great, most important thing about Edwin Hubble is that he began life as a lawyer and then became an astronomer. So there, are, there is hope for all of you. In any case, he discovered that the universe is expanding, which changed everything from a philosophical and scientific perspective. In particular, it told us the universe had a beginning. And that was very different. And of course, if it had a beginning, and that beginning we now know is 13.7 billion years ago, except in Arkansas and Ohio and a few other states in my, my country. Um, we, if it had a beginning, the big question is how will it end? And, and, and that became the central question of 20th century cosmology. Now, it turned out Einstein was ultimately able to, actually even before the ha fact, was able to explain the expansion of the universe, although he didn't know he could. Uh, but Einstein's general theory of relativity tells us that space is actually curved in the presence of matter. Space responds to mass. And, because, and these pictures are to guide the eye because I can't draw curved three-dimensional universes. We are three-dimensional beings. We can't picture them. I can't picture them. You can't picture them. I can write them down mathematically, but I can't picture them. So I draw these guides to the eye. But it turns out that indeed, even for a curved three-dimensional universe, there are just three types of geometry, an open, closed, or flat. And these are the two-dimensional analogs. And um, uh, a closed universe I might not be able to picture, but I could certainly describe. In a closed universe, I could, I wish I knew where the camera was so I could stare at the people out there, but I don't know where it is. Anyway, um, if I'd stare along, if I look far enough in that direction in a closed universe, I'd see the back of my head. Okay, that's, light will actually travel around a closed universe, etc. But the important thing is, in a universe dominated by matter, a closed universe will expand and stop and then recontract in a big crunch, reverse the Big Bang, whereas an open universe will expand forever, and a flat universe will just be the boundary between the two. And the big question is, which universe did we live in? And that's, by the way, the reason that I got into cosmology, in fact, as a particle physicist, because I wanted to be the first person to know how the universe would end. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Now, the great question is, which universe do we live in? But since mass curves space, that means you just have to weigh the universe. And that was the simple prospect. So I want to tell you in a few minutes how we have, in fact, weighed the universe. And I want to do a little bit of history, since I like history. 
And I want to take you back to a kinder, gentler time, 1936, which maybe wasn't a kinder, gentler time, but <laughs> it was for science anyway. Um, and the magazine Science, which is a distinguished and still was a distinguished scientific journal then, published an article that had the title, Lens-like Action of a Star by the Deviation of Light in the Gravitational Field. Now, for those of you who may be aspiring scientists and might want to publish one day, or particularly get rejected by the journal Science, um, here's how this article began. Some time ago, R.W. Mandel paid me a visit and asked me to publish the results of a little calculation which I had made at his request. This note complies with his wish. It, try that now, okay? <laughs> See if you get accepted. Now, the author had credentials, it's true. His name was Albert Einstein. So, maybe that helped. But what he published was a calculation that he thought was entirely unimportant. He, 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 uh, he realized, in fact, the, the discovery that made him famous for the world was the re realization that space is curved and light curves in curved space. But he realized that this could mean that space itself could act like a lens. If I had a source of light and a big mass, then if I, if I have a big enough mass, the light can go around the mass and curve and come back and be focused again and be magnified like my, my glasses magnify things. Or if I had a cut glass goblet, which I don't have, and I looked through it, I'd see many versions of you. And space could do exactly the same thing. But he said it would never be observable. He felt it was unimportant, in fact. And this was the calculation which Mr. Mandel convinced him to perform. And he actually had thought it was so unimportant that it, if you go back to his notebooks in 1912, well before he finished general relativity, he did exactly the same calculation. He just forgot he'd done it. <laughs> so he published it. And then I'm, I'm, one of my favorite things is if you read the correspondence with the editor, you will read a note from him afterwards. Let me thank you for your cooperation with the little publication which Mr. Mandel squeezed out of me. It is of little value, but it makes the poor guy happy. <laughs> That's how science is done. Well, he was completely wrong. It wasn't of little value. It allows us to weigh the universe. And in fact, in this picture, this is precisely the phenomena that Einstein said we'd never observe. This is, in fact, an example of what we call gravitational lensing. This image is a Hubble Space Telescope picture, one of my favorites, but they're all one of my favorites. It's, uh, it's an interesting picture. It's a deep space picture. In fact, every object, every spot in this picture is a galaxy, not a star. And each of these galaxies contains hundreds of billions of stars. And, and this, this, this is a cluster of galaxies. Clusters of galaxies are the biggest bound objects in the universe. There's nothing bigger. So anything that could fall into anything will fall into a cluster of galaxies. I'm trying to stay over here because I realize these microphones may, may be all they can hear over there. These are about 10 million light years across. It takes light 10 million years to cross from there. This particular cluster is 5 billion light years away. 5 billion light years away. So that means the light left these stars before our sun and earth formed. 4.5 billion years ago. And that also means, in the, four, in the five billion years it took to get to us, that most of these stars are no longer around. They've died. And the civilizations that may have existed around them have died with them, unknown and unheralded, as ours will one day. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that uh, there are these weird blue things. And these blue things are images of a single galaxy located 5 billion light years behind that cluster, 10 billion light years away. It would not be visible, but it's magnified by the mass here, which acts as a lens, and also split. All of these images are images of exactly the same object. Remarkable, telling us that indeed space is curved, as we knew, verifying that if anyone mattered, if it mattered to anyone. But now you see the point is we understand general relativity, so we can work backwards. We can use this to weigh this system. We can ask how much mass is there in the system, and where is it distributed in order to produce this image? So we do that. It's a complicated thing called the mathematical inversion, but we can do it. And this is the image. This is where the mass in the system are. These are the, the spikes are where the galaxies are. But what you notice is the huge mountain of mass where the galaxies aren't. There's 40 times as much mass in this system as can be accounted for by all the stars and hot gas in all those galaxies. 40 times as much mass 
doesn't shine. And physicists, with their incredible linguistic perspicacity, call this dark matter because it doesn't shine. And there is 40 times as much dark matter in this system as visible matter. And what makes that incredibly exciting, for particle physicists in particular, is that we know from different arguments that there can't be enough protons and neutrons, the stuff that makes up normal matter. There aren't that many in the universe, by a factor of almost 10. They can't make up the dark matter. So the dark matter must be made of something else, some new type of elementary particle, something that interacts so weakly it doesn't shine. And that makes it very exciting, because you see, that means it's not just out there. It's in this room, going right through your bodies as you nod off during this lecture, particularly in the video room, because <laughs> you can't hear. <laughs> but that means it's exciting because we don't have to look out there for it. We can look for it here. We don't have to do it here. In fact, we look for it deep underground because, uh, can they hear? Anyone know? Yeah, they can. Oh, good. Hi. Um, so we can look for it deep underground. And in fact, we can build detectors. I think I'll, I'll, I'll just, I think I have one here. Yeah. Which actually, one of which I, well, these protectors I proposed a quarter of a century ago. Um, deep, deep underground, because above ground, cosmic rays are bombarding the Earth. And these particles interact so weakly, most of them go right through the Earth without knowing it was there. And so we, take, we go in deep mines. And this happens to be a boule of uh, germanium, the stuff that makes a computer. And you just have to cool it down a little bit above absolute zero. And then uh, the, uh, billion, uh, every day, billions of these dark matter particles going right through the Earth. But every now and then, one of them will bounce off the nucleus of germanium and heat the whole thing up by one one thousandth of a degree. So that's all you have to do, build these detectors. And there are detectors like this all around the world right now looking for this stuff. But the important stuff, the fan, and when we discover it, well, we might understand the identity of dark matter. Actually, it's even more exciting. Because this dark matter was left over from the beginning of time, created in the Big Bang. But there's another place to look for it, and that is to recreate the conditions of the Big Bang. Are we OK? OK? OK, good. To recreate the conditions of the Big Bang, or at least the very early universe. And we can do that. We can do that in a very small region, not too far away from here at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. And so there's a race, you see, because we're, people in the Large Hadron Collider are hoping to produce the particles that are indeed dark matter and detect them there. And then the people who are building those detectors underground are hoping to detect the ones left over from the beginning of time. And there's a big race to see who will do it first or whether either set of people will do it first. And it'd be very exciting. But the important point is we don't have to know what it is. This allows to us to measure how much stuff there is in the universe. We can weigh clusters. And if we can weigh clusters, we've weighed everything. And we finally have the answer to how much stuff there is in the universe. And here's the answer with a drum roll. I can see people fainting in the back of the room. Um, <laughs> physicists, uh, in order to appear scholarly, when they measure something, they give it a Greek letter. And uh, um, this Greek letter is omega. And omega is the ratio of the actual amount of matter in the universe divided by the amount of matter you'd need to make an exactly flat universe. So if omega is bigger than 1, the universe is closed. If omega is less than 1, the universe is open. And if it's equal to 1, the universe is flat. And you can see with great accuracy, essentially, we now know definitively, after 80 years of trying, we've been able to measure that, in fact, there's only 30% of the amount of matter needed to make the universe flat. The universe appears to be open. End of story. But there's a problem with that story. That is, the theoretical physicists like me knew it was wrong. Because we, we knew the answer. We always know the answer. We're very rarely right, but we always know the answer. And we knew the universe was flat. We knew it was flat for many reasons. First of all, a flat universe is the only mathematically beautiful universe. And for other reasons that I'll tell you about in a bit, we, it, we're, we're quite it was flat. But here these damn observers were once again getting it wrong, as they usually do. But there's a loophole in this picture. Because after all, you are only measuring matter that's in and around galaxies. Wouldn't it be better? And, and then from that, you're using Einstein's general theory of relativity to infer the curvature of the universe. Wouldn't it be better to measure the curvature of the universe directly? 
And amazingly, in the last decade, we've been able to do that. Uh, and I want to tell you a little bit about it. In these two-dimensional images, even though they're just allegories to the real three-dimensional universe, you notice something. If I draw a triangle on a flat piece of paper, I know what the sum of the angles are. And if I ask a British high school student, they'd be able to tell me it was 180 degrees. If I ask an American high school student, they would stare at me. Um, <laughs> but in a closed universe or an open universe, the number is different because triangles are different. It turns out uh, because because straight lines curve on a curved surface. The, in a, on a cl closed universe, the angles are, the sum of the angles is more than a 180 degrees. In an open universe, it's less. It turns out that that is exactly true even for a curved three-dimensional universe. So if we could measure a big enough triangle, we'd be able to measure the curvature of the universe. And in the last decade, we've been able to do that. And here's how we get this triangle. This is uh, an image of the cosmic microwave background radiation the afterglow of the Big Bang. It's radiation that's been coming to us from the beginning of time. It's actually coming to us from a surface that was produced about 100,000 years after the Big Bang. Because in, at early times, the universe was very hot. And when it, had, when it had a temperature above 3,000 degrees, hydrogen, which is the dominant stuff in the universe, gets broken apart. Its protons and electrons get broken apart and separated. And so you don't have neutral matter anymore. You have what's called a plasma. And a plasma is opaque to radiation. You can't see through a plasma. So if we try and look out, we can't see past that point. It's like looking out the walls in this room. Or trying to see the audience in the <laughs> overflow room. But that means if you work the, the picture forward, at early times the universe was opaque, 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 until the time the universe cooled down below 3,000 degrees, and then neutral matter, protons captured electrons, matter became neutral, and neutral matter is transparent to radiation. So if we look out, we should be able to see all the way back to that surface, just like I can see all the way back to this wall. That radiation that's coming from, at, from that surface in all directions, surface located almost a little over 13 billion light years away in all directions, that radiation coming at me has cooled as the universe has expanded. It was 3,000 degrees. It's now three degrees above absolute zero, and the radiation is in the microwave band. And that radiation was discovered by accident in New Jersey, of all places, by two people who didn't know what the hell they were doing. But they won the Nobel Prize anyway, because you don't know, have to know what you're doing to win the Nobel Prize. You just have to do it. And they did it, and it was a important discovery. Now, this means if we image that radiation, we can get a picture of what the universe looked like when it was 100,000 years old, a picture from a surface located 13 billion more or so more than 13 billion light years away. And this is this image. This, is, uh, this image, this was particular image, was taken with this uh, experiment. This is called the boomerang experiment. It's, a, it's a, um, on a balloon, and it's a microwave radiometer. And it was put in Antarctica, and it was sent around the world, which is, of course, easy to do in Antarctica. You do, in the South Pole, you do this. Okay? <laughs> wasn't quite at the South Pole. It took two weeks to get around. Came back to where it began, which is what was called the boomerang experiment. And um, it imaged the microwave background. Here's, here's the image. This is an amazing image. Images like this actually won another Nobel Prize because they're baby pictures of the universe. And this is, this is a false color image. These are hot spots and cold spots in the microwave background. But what they reflect is small lumps present at the beginning of time. Small by meaning small in variation. The lumps are actually huge, much bigger than the scale, in fact, as big as, or bigger than clusters. But these would be the lumps that would later collapse to form all of the galaxies and stars and planets and aliens and everything in the universe. So it really is a baby picture. These were the lumps that were created at the beginning of time. That I'll come back to. But for our purposes, they're very important because you see, Turns out gravity travels at the speed of light. So how does, well, lumps, if the universe is 100,000 years old at the time these lumps picture was taken, then lumps that are bigger than 100,000 light years across don't even know they're lumps because gravity can't travel across them. So they don't know to collapse. It's like in my country there was a, I think you get it, got it here, there was a, ca a cartoon program called um, Roadrunner. 
And, um, you know, Wiley Coyote always runs over a cliff and hangs around for a while before he realizes he's supposed to fall. And that's exactly the way it is for these lumps. Because lumps larger than 100,000 light years across don't know to collapse. So the largest lumps that can have collapsed significantly are 100,000 year light years across. But that gives us a ruler. It's a ruler of a known length, 100,000 light years across at a known distance. And I would love to stand out here, but I don't know if they can hear me. So I'm stuck behind here. And that gives us a triangle. We ask how big does a ruler look on that surface? And if the light rays travel in straight lines, the ruler should look about one degree across. If the light rays curve inward as they would do in a curved universe, the ruler will look bigger, maybe two degrees across. And if the light rays curve outward as they do in an open universe, the ruler will look smaller, half a degree. So a picture is worth a thousand words. So here's a different false color image of that same region. And here are some universes made on a computer, a closed, flat, and open universe. And we just randomly generate lumps and ask, how big should a 100,000 light year across lump look in such a universe? Well, it would look that big. But this lump is bigger than these lumps. And in an open universe, how big should the average 100,000 light year across lump? It should be one of these little things. But these are smaller than these lumps. But just like Goldilocks, in a flat universe, it's just right. In fact, it's right now we know to an accuracy of better than 1%. We have proved that the universe is flat, just as we thought. So we do this. But there's a problem. There's a problem. I just proved to you 10 minutes ago that the universe was open. There's only 30% of the amount of stuff needed to make the universe flat. So we're missing 70% of the stuff. Well, we measured all the stuff around galaxies. So if this energy is somewhere it can't be around galaxies. That has to be where galaxies aren't. What is where galaxies aren't? Nothing. Now it turns out, if you put energy into nothing, which is allowed in general relativity in principle, then it has a very interesting property. All other sorts of energy are gravitationally attractive. But if I put energy into nothing, it's gravitationally repulsive. So if I, if I were looking at the expansion of the universe, and this is, a pro, this is a way we determine the expansion of the universe measuring velocity as a function of distance, for reasons, again, I won't go into, if the universe were, if I filled up empty space with energy, the universe would accelerate. It would speed up because of that repulsion. A sensible universe would slow down. Well, in 1998, two groups of astronomers who didn't know what the hell they were doing tried to measure the rate at which the universe was slowing down. And this became the cover of Science Magazine again. Now, this is, they're trying to measure the rate at which this curve is pointing, curving downward, measuring these objects called supernovae at large distances. Now, in, to guide the eye, what I want to do is draw a straight line through this data set down here and make the whole thing horizontal. And if the universe was slowing down as a sensible universe should do, these distant objects called supernovae, exploding stars, would follow that curve. But they don't. You know, they're not even below the straight line. They're above the straight line. What does that mean? One of two things. Either the data's wrong, which is usually the case in astronomy, or the universe is accelerating, it's speeding up. Now, just for fun, if I, we can ask how much energy would I have to add to empty space to fit that data? And the amount I have to add is exactly what we're missing. If I put 70% of the energy of a flat universe into empty space, Everything works. So, how can that be? Well, it turns out that empty space isn't so simple. I mean, if you ask a, a, a four-year-old what's the energy of empty space, they'd say nothing because there's nothing there. But that four-year-old hasn't taken quantum mechanics. Well, at least in the United States. And quantum mechanics tells us that empty space is really a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles popping in and out of existence in a time scale so short you can't measure it. And in fact, that sounds like philosophy. Forgive me. Sounds like counting angels on the head of a pin, maybe theology. But it's not. Because while we can't measure those virtual particles directly, as they're called, we can measure them indirectly. This is actually an image that was shown at the Nobel Prize ceremonies in 2004. Um, and here, this is a, actually a picture 
or an animation, but one derived from mathematics, of what the empty space inside of a proton looks like. This is using the theory that was developed that allowed you to calculate this, which won the Nobel Prize. And it turns out that this, these fluctuating fields and particles that are popping in and out of existence are actually responsible for most of your mass. 90% of the mass of the proton doesn't come from the quarks that are inside of it. You may have learned in high school that protons are made of three quarks. Only 10% of the mass of the proton comes from that. 90% comes from this stuff. So, if we can estimate, and we, the theory tells us how to calculate that, if we can calculate the contribution of these virtual particles to the energy of a proton, we should be able to ca calculate the contribution of the virtual particles to the energy of empty space outside of protons. When we do, we come up with the worst prediction in all of physics. That we calculate that the energy of empty space should be roughly a gazillion times the energy of everything we see. And as I say, this is literally the worst prediction in all of physics, which is why we never talked about it. We calculate that the energy of empty space should be at least 120 orders of magnitude times the mass of everything we see. And that's impossible, because if that was the case, nothing would have ever formed. And this was so problematic that, in fact, in order to sleep at night, we theorists knew the answer. The answer was zero. Because it turns out, you, you know, you, we didn't know how to cancel a big number and leave a non-zero number in the 121st decimal place. But zero is a nice number. We, you can do mathematical symmetries produce zero all the time. So we figured there was some new symmetry of nature and the problem would be solved and everything would be okay. But in fact, we've learned that that's not the case. Empty space has energy. It's 120 orders of magnitude smaller than we would predict. And we don't have the slightest understanding of why. Not the slightest. So, this is the universe in which we live. And it allows me to set the stage for asking the question, could it have come from nothing, and where is it going? So, to summarize what I've taught you so far, the dominant energy of the universe resides in empty space. We don't have the slightest idea why it's there. And if anyone comes to a lecture hall, um, and, uh, and, and there are still people in it who can hear and not outside in some video room out there, and they try and explain, they, say, they claim they know the answer, they're lying. Okay? Especially if they're a string theorist. <laughs> we don't understand it. But we think its existence is probably tied to the beginning of time, and it will determine our future, as I'll get to. So, that's it. Let me summarize. We, the first very important thing I want to tell you all, especially the people in the overflow room, is you are far more insignificant than you thought. That should be clear. <laughs> but you too. You, not me, but all of you. No. Um, because, uh, we got a problem? Okay, you're just coming up to say hi. What? Oh, if it's, I'll repeat the question. It's going to be QA. I'm not there yet. Okay, good. Thank you for anticipating. Okay. I know I was going somewhere. Um, okay, let's see. So, you, oh yeah, you're insignificant. That's the important point. You are far more insignificant than you thought because, in fact, that picture I showed you of all the stars, you know, you can get rid of us and everything we can see in the night sky, all the stars and galaxies, and the universe will be largely the same. We are a 1% 1 bit of pollution in a universe full of dark matter and dark energy. So, so much for a universe made for us. We are an irrelevant sideshow. Get used to it. Okay, now, I want to talk about this question of how the universe will end, because it leads to this interest in why, um, why theorists like me knew the universe was flat. So I want to take you back to a wonderful time for all of you. I want to take you back to uh, high school physics class. And, uh, and we teach our physics students, today I take up this pen and I want to throw it up in the air, it comes back down. Okay? I throw it up higher and it comes back down. If I throw it up really high and there's no ceiling, it doesn't come down at all. And so we, if I throw it up at the escape velocity from the Earth, it, it leaves the Earth. And we actually teach physics students how to calculate it. And I just want to remind you of that. I'm sure you all know this, but I want to remind you of what you may have once learned. 
When we throw a ball up, or a coin, or a pen, it has energy, and those energy comes in two pieces. A positive piece, which we call the kinetic energy, related to the motion, and a negative piece that comes from the gravitational attraction of the Earth. And it turns out we, all of this just becomes simple bookkeeping. If the total energy is greater than zero, if the positive piece beats the negative piece, then the coin will escape. So if I make the positive piece, the velocity big enough, it'll beat the negative piece. If the velocity isn't big enough, so the negative piece wins out, it'll return. And that's how we calculate the escape velocity from the Earth. Well, it turns out the same thing is true for the universe. If our universe is expanding, and here's a small region of our universe, and these are, these are galaxies, not sperm. And, uh, uh, and we're, if we're here. If we look out, and we're looking at galaxies, they're all moving away from us on average. That's what Mr. Hubble discovered. Now, if the universe is the same everywhere, we don't have to calculate what happens to all galaxies. We just have to calculate what happens to one galaxy, and the same thing will happen to all the rest of them. So I'll pick a galaxy, and it's moving away from us. So to calculate what will happen to it, I just calculate the positive piece of its motion, which comes from its velocity, which happens to be related to the expansion rate of the universe that Mr. Hubble measured. And then to get the negative piece, I have to know all the mass that's pulling it inward. Well, that means I measure the total amount of stuff in the universe. The density of stuff pulling it inward. And it turns out, therefore, if the, if the negative piece beats the positive piece, or B over A is bigger than 1, that galaxy will stop and come back, if matter is all there is. If B over A is less than 1, so the positive piece beats the negative piece, the galaxy will go on expanding forever. Okay? But what is really neat and remarkable is that this ratio, B over A, is nothing other than this quantity omega, which tells us about the curvature of the universe. And we've measured omega. It's exactly equal to 1. We live in a flat universe. What does that mean? That means b is exactly equal to a. What does that mean? The positive piece is exactly equal to the negative piece. What does that mean? The total gravitational energy of every object in the universe is 0. Now, if you were going to create a universe from nothing, what would you make the total gravitational energy? It's the first hint that perhaps we can have our cake and eat it too. So I want to spend the rest of the time here talking about how the universe can come from nothing. And essentially to discuss the important fact that we can't prove our universe came from nothing. But amazingly, the characteristics of our universe are precisely those characteristics we would expect of a universe that came from nothing, was created by the laws of physics without any supernatural garbage. Okay? So, this is what I've already just said. A flat universe is the only one where the gravitational energy of every object is zero. So this leads us to begin to talk about nothing. But when we talk about nothing, we have to be a little more precise, I have learned, because people get upset by the idea of nothing. I would argue, and I still argue, in spite of many people who argue the contrary, that nothing is a physical quantity, not a philosophical quantity. Because something is a physical quantity. And so in order to understand nothing, we have to understand something. And the point is, science has changed our understanding of both. So the first answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And by the way, that question is really, how is there something rather than nothing? Because the why question is unimportant. Is, why, why is there something, but I'll use the why question because I'm stuck in the jargon of the time. Why is there something rather than nothing? The answer is, because nothing is unstable. The surprising thing would not be that there's something but rather that there's nothing. But then, of course, it wouldn't be around to ask the question. Because it turns out, because of those particles popping in and out of empty space, once I add gravity into the mix, so I can create particle-antiparticle pairs that have zero total energy because of their gravitational attraction, they can persist forever. So if I have no particles to begin with and just empty space, the, the nothing of the Bible, if you wish, an eternal empty void, and I wait long enough, quantum mechanics guarantees me particles will be produced. They'll spout out of nothing due to the laws of quantum mechanics. So, so it's very simple. Nothing is unstable. You wouldn't expect to see nothing. You'd be very surprised if there were nothing. Okay. Now that, however, does not satisfy many people. Be well, because it gets rid of God for the first part, but also because well, you know, it doesn't really look like nothing. After all, even though there's nothing there, and there is nothing there in empty space with waste stuff, I don't 
those particles aren't real. There's nothing there. You could, from now to eternity, try and see what's in there, and you'd see nothing. Okay? So it really is nothing in that sense. But nevertheless, space is there. So this is, but before I get there, let me just summarize. I forgot I wrote it down. So if you have empty space, you can create real particles with total, zero total energy, and you can do it without any, any you, don't need, you don't need God. You don't need some outside intervener. The universe can do it all by itself. Okay, or the nothingness of the universe. But, as I point out, that that isn't, doesn't seem like it's nothing, because although I don't have particles and I don't have radiation, I've got space. Where the hell did the space come from? You might ask, especially if you don't like this answer. And the, the answer to the second question is, very simply, gravity, Einstein's general relativity, is a theory of space and time. If I make general relativity a quantum theory, and we can't yet, we don't have a theory for quantum gravity, but we, we have some ideas, good ones and bad ones. Um, but whatever theory of quantum gravity ultimately exists will make space and time quantum variables. And quantum variables fluctuate. That's what causes virtual particles to pop in and out of existence in empty space. That, in fact, as I'll describe, is what we think caused those lumps that eventually created us and everything we can see, quantum mechanics. We are here as a direct result of quantum mechanics. But if I make space and time quantum mechanical at the very beginning of time, then quantum mechanics will allow space to be created, universes to be created where none existed before. Space and time themselves can fluctuate into existence and fluctuate out of existence. I can create universes and spaces where there was literally no space or time before. Most of them will disappear in an instant, just like my virtual particles. But if I create a universe that has zero total energy, that universe can persist forever. Now, it all sounds great because I just told you in a flat universe, every object has zero gravitational energy. So it would really be nice if that was the end of the story. But it's not. I've got to be honest. It turns out we can't calculate the total energy of a flat universe. The gravitational energy of every object in a, in a flat universe is zero. But Einstein told us E equals mc squared. So objects have rest mass and they have energy. Okay? And it turns out the only universe for which I can calculate the total energy and find out it's precisely zero is a closed universe, a finite closed universe. That's not the universe in which we live. Well, that's true. But most closed universes will collapse. Remember I told you they collapse? In an instant, in a microsecond. The only kind of closed universe that could survive long enough for us to be around to ask the question is one in which for a little while, there's an energy in empty space. That energy in empty space is gravitationally repulsive, and it'll puff up that closed universe to be a very large scale. And that is exactly what particle physics predicts should have happened in the early period of our universe. It's a phenomenon called inflation. Good thing to talk about at the London School of Economics. But this is inflation we understand. Particle physics says at early times, I don't know, do I have a, I'm wondering if I have a picture. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to talk about this. I have time. I'm going to talk about beer. Um, I grew up in Canada, so there's a lot of beer there. If any of you, the little children shouldn't listen to this. If any of you have ever had a party and you bought some beer and you forgot to put it in the fridge, what do you do? Well, you do what I do. You put it in the freezer, right? And then you forget about it. Then what happens? Well, you open it up and suddenly crash! The bottle breaks and the, and the beer suddenly freezes. Why? Because under high pressure, the beer was liquid. But the minute I opened it up, the beer changed state. It froze. And when it was liquid, it was called a metastable state. And when, it, when I opened the top, it could release energy and break open the, the beer bottles. Our picture of the early universe is precisely that. That as the universe was cooling down, it got stuck in a metastable phase, a state, where empty space got, had energy stuck in it, large amounts of energy, causing the universe to expand by a huge amount, a factor of 10 to the 90th in volume in a time period of a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second. That's 
sounds impossible. It sounds crazy. But it's predicted by the theory. Moreover, it turns out during that period, we can calculate what will happen. It turns out quantum mechanics will produce fluctuations, which get puffed up and made very big and get frozen at early times and get turned into density fluctuations that might one day collapse and form galaxies. And if we ask what would that distribution of fluctuations look like, it would look just like the picture I showed you in the cosmic microwave background. That gives us great confidence, in fact, that this picture is probably true. And you are here, literally, because you're resulting from quantum fluctuations. But from the point of what I want to talk about, go back to what I said before. And by the way, that phenomena is precisely the kind of phenomena that now has greater validity because we may have discovered the Higgs particle at the Large Hadron Collider. The Higgs particle also tells us that there's some uniform background field throughout the universe called the Higgs field. But this idea of inflation requires a different field that gets stuck in a uniform phase in the early universe. And it was very slimy, that prediction, because we didn't know of any fundamental scalar fields that should exist. But now we seem to know of at least one. So this picture has gained currency. The picture of inflation is now much more believable without beer. So if there's a period of inflation, it'll puff the universe up. But just like if I blow a balloon up, and make it very big, say the surface circumference of the Earth, it looks flat. The Earth looks flat in Kansas. And so our universe, the only kind of universe that could survive, closed universe that could have been created by quantum gravity, that would survive long enough to survive to the present time, is a universe that looks flat. Precisely like the one we live in. So. No space, no matter, no radiation, no space. It can all come from a quantum fluctuation, and it will look precisely like the universe we live in. Some people say, however, OK, well, that's OK. You've got no space, no matter, no radiation. But what about the laws? What about the laws? Who created the laws? And the interesting thing, although it's depressing, is even the laws of physics themselves may be accidental. And the reason for that is, this weird energy of empty space that we don't understand. People have said it's so inexplicable that maybe we can understand it as following. Turns out if it was much bigger than it is, no galaxies would form. So let's say there are not one universe, but many different universes. And the energy of empty space can vary in each one, and then only in those when it's in which it's not much greater than what we measure today will galaxies form. And only then will stars and planets form, and only then will astronomers form. So the universe is the way it is because there are astronomers here to measure it. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds like a tautology or it sounds re religious almost. It's neither. It's kind of cosmic natural selection. You know, Darwin told us that the, the diversity of life on Earth wasn't designed. Bees can see the color of flowers, not because they were designed to do it, but if they couldn't, they wouldn't find the nectar that would allow them to reproduce. Well, we would not expect to find ourselves in a universe in which we couldn't live. We'd be quite surprised. <laughs> so if this is true, it's not that surprising. It just says there are many universes. We find ourselves living in a universe in which there are galaxies, and galaxies can allow stars and planets, etc. It's a depressing thought because it means at some fundamental level, this fundamental quantity, the energy of empty space, is an accident. But particle physicists are way ahead of cosmologists. Because, you know, cosmologists don't understand one number, the energy of empty space. But particle physicists haven't understood many more numbers for much longer. We don't understand why gravity is the weakest force in nature. We don't understand why the proton is 2,000 times heavier than the electron. We don't understand why there are three generations of elementary particles. And so particle physicists have jumped on this and said, maybe we don't have to understand anything. Maybe it's all an accident. Maybe if any of these things were different, life wouldn't have arisen. And in every universe, these numbers are different. And then we don't need a theory of everything. We just need a theory of anything. And, and we, well, we have a candidate theory. It's called string theory. So I want to give you one slide on string theory, <laughs> those who've never heard of it. One guy says the other, I, I just had an awesome idea. Suppose that all matter and energy is made of tiny vibrating strings. Second person says, OK, what would that imply? First person says, I don't know. So, 
So that, that's the history of string theory over the last 40 years. But it's an interesting theory. But one of the problems with this theory is it predicted that there are lots of extra dimensions in the universe, maybe six or seven extra dimensions. And where, you don't see them, so where it happens to them? Well, maybe they're, they're compactified in such a small distances that we can't measure them. But every different, turns out every different way you compactify these extra dimensions produces a different four-dimensional universe. And that was a wart. That was an ugly point about string theory. It didn't predict a un unique four-dimensional universe like the one we live in. But now, like every wart in string theory, it's become a beauty mark. Because now it's a landscape for that possible anthropic idea. Maybe every one of those universes has different laws of physics. And when a universe pops into existence, the laws that are associated with that universe pop into existence with it. In which case, no matter, no radiation, no space, no time, no laws. That's nothing to me, anyway. Now, I should point out from a philosophical perspective that this is an interesting question in some sense, because many people have, were driven and, to the idea of a prime mover, a first cause in the language of the Roman Catholic Church, because how could you create a universe if you weren't outside of our universe? And that's why you needed some eternal being who was outside of our universe, and, 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 and as primitive peoples believed in intentionality, they created a god to do it. I want to point out that this idea that our universe may not be unique and there may be many universes has been called a multiverse. There may be universes elsewhere popping into existence today. And from a philosophical perspective, that multiverse is outside of our universe. It could be eternal. And therefore, for people who like the idea of that kind of thing, the multiverse can play the role of God or a prime mover. Now, I want to point out that's just talk. First of all. Secondly, we weren't driven to this to replace God. We, we weren't driven to this multiverse because we didn't like God. I don't like God. But we were driven to it by the data. That's the important point. It wasn't some philosophical discussion of how would we like the universe to originate. The data has suggested to us from particle physics and cosmology that maybe our universe isn't unique. And maybe there is a multiverse. And certainly, our universe has the properties it does because it could come from nothing. And that's the important thing. We've been driven to it by nature. We haven't assumed we know the answer before we ask the question. Now, in deference to, I want to close in deference to my late friend Christopher Hitchens, a wonderful man who was writing the foreword for this particular book before he died. And I used to explain physics to Christopher. And he pointed out to me when I was explaining to him the future that nothing is heading towards us as fast as can be. And I want to just quickly tell you what that means. Because if we ask what the future will be like, it's rather interesting. I remember I told you 85 years ago the universe consisted of one galaxy and it was static and eternal. In the far future, at two trillion years from now, observers who live on planets around stars, and there will be stars two trillion years from now, and, and organic materials and planets and beings that can evolve around them. In England, I could still use the word evolve. And what will they do? They'll develop the laws of quantum mechanics, they'll discover electromagnetism, they'll discover gravity, and etc. They'll build telescopes. What will they see? Nothing. Because the universe is speeding up now, and all the galaxies that we now see will, will then be moving away from us faster than the speed of light, which is allowed in general relativity. They will have disappeared. All evidence of the Big Bang will have disappeared. And observers who look out will see a single galaxy in which they're located, surrounded by a vast, dark, empty, eternal space. And they will return, poetically, to the picture of the universe that we incorrectly had 100 years ago. But eventually, even these stars will burn out. And we'll end up with a cold, dark, empty universe. And so, in, as Christopher put it, the answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing, is really quite simple. Just wait, there won't be for long. And that is an important answer because it, it reinforces our cosmic conceit. We assume we're the pinnacle of evolution and nothing's ever going to change. Of course it's changing. We assume that we're the pinnacle of the universe, that it's the way it is and it's always going to be that way. It isn't. We're here at a brief cosmic moment and in the far future it'll be quite different. We are fortunate to live right now. In fact, that's the second lesson I wanted to give you. First one, you remember it? You're insignificant. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs>
Insignificant. <laughs> Second, the future is miserable. Those are the two things you need to remember from this lecture. So, to conclude, science has demonstrated that a universe from nothing is not only plausible, but actually likely. What we mean by something and nothing has completely changed. That's the issue I want to point out. Science has changed the meaning of those words. There's nothing wrong. It's not a, it's not a scam. We change the meaning of the words just like we change the meaning of the question about planets. As we learn about nature by probing it, the meaning of things changes. And so the question means a very different thing than it did when theologians and philosophers first raised it. And to repeat, the why question is not the interesting question. The how questions are the interesting questions. How did the universe evolve and how can we find out? And that's what we are continuing to do. So, I don't want you to be depressed by the fact that you're insignificant. You're insignificant. <laughs> I don't want you to be depressed by the fact that the future is miserable. I want you to be happy. Because in fact there is no evidence of purpose in the universe, but the main purpose is what we make of it. We are fortunate enough to have evolved a consciousness and at a time when we can ask these very questions. And we can look back to the earliest moments of the history of the universe. We can see those hundred billion galaxies. So instead of being depressed about the fact that we are just a miserable accident in a universe without purpose, we should instead enjoy our brief moment in the sun. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, the people in the video rooms don't have time for questions because we don't have a microphone there, right? Is that right? Okay. So you're even in worse shape than you thought. But you can listen to the answers and then you can, I should say, I make it a policy. We're not going to spend a long time with questions because it's damn hot and some people have to pee. But, <laughs> but um, I will answer some in, in here, but I will, I'll be, I'll be signing books, but more importantly, I'll be answering questions as long as you have questions. So people who are in the, in, the, in the extra overflow rooms, if after the question period want to come back here, I will be here uh, to answer your questions. Okay? So, let's have a few. Do you, do you want to field your questions? I want to field my own questions, if that's alright. I think the dog has the first one. No, I'm just joking. Okay. Any, any questions? Take one in the back. Yeah. Yes, you. You have to scream it and I have to repeat it for the people who are no longer in the overflow room. Yes. There's no energy. Yeah. There won't be even us. To, there will be a universe with no matter, no radiation, and empty space, which is. Okay, the, the question was, I'm assuming in the uncertainty principle at some level in quantum mechanics when I talk about a creation of universe or nothing. In a sense, that's right. So that was the question. And, and is that assumption necessary? The, an the answer is no. But now I get an even stranger metaphysical ground that I don't feel comfortable on. Namely, it could be that quantum mechanics is a property of our universe alone. That even quantum mechanics arises when our universe arises that other universes exist that don't have quantum mechanics. They're governed by other microscopic laws. But that's irrelevant. Because what I showed is we know quantum mechanics operates in our universe. And given that knowledge, and given the, what we know about gravity, quantum mechanics will allow the creation of space. It's nothing. It's happening right now in our universe. And so, there, so but when I say that, I have no there's no theory, there's no, not even string theory, that predicts quantum mechanics arises. Uh, string theory assumes quantum mechanics is universal. And maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. I don't know. 
but it's possible that it could arise. But the important point is, it arose in our universe. It describes the properties of our universe, and very little extrapolation from what we know will allow the creation of spaces and times and matter and energy that look exactly like what we see. Once again, is that a proof? Absolutely not, since I don't even have a theory of quantum gravity. But, you know, Richard Dawkins was kind enough to write the afterword for, for this book, and he, he was, it was full of hyperbole. And he was kind enough to compare my book to the origin of the species, which I thought was a nice thing to do, especially for book sales. But, um, uh, but and I, it's a little over the top, because, of course, Origin of the Species is one of the greatest scientific books ever written, and mine's pretty good. But, but, um, but there is some philosophical connection, namely, when, when, Charles, when Darwin described natural selection and, and evolution, he didn't know about DNA. He, didn't, he, he described a plausible theory that explained the data. He didn't know about, about the details of genetics. He looked at, he measured things and said, this is plausible, and with very few assumptions, I can arise at the diversity of life, and it agrees with the data. We now don't know what the origin of life is. We haven't, in spite of the fact that people think Darwin talked about origins of life, he didn't. But we're getting closer. And I think very few people today would argue that, well, they think it's highly unlikely that chemistry couldn't turn into biology by natural processes, but it's a postulate. And what is amazing, and what I want to celebrate in writing this book, is that cosmology is coming to this po similar point, where we don't have the fundamental theories. We just have amazing observations about the universe, and those observations are pointing in a direction which is interesting and suggests that the universe could come from nothing by normal physical processes. There's no way that we can prove that. Um, but it's plausible, and that plausibility is what I think is worth celebrating, especially since I think the notion of God is absolutely so completely ridiculous. I'll take um, one up here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, before I came here today, I had a question for you, but I think you destroyed it. Good. <laughs> I, my, my question was going to be if the universe can expand it. It's a very good question. It's not a, a dumb question. People ask, where? So the question is, if the universe is expanding or exploding, what's it expanding into? And the answer is, it doesn't have to expand into anything. You know, there are lots of examples of that. If I, the simple, old-fashioned examples. If I take the surface of a balloon and blow it up, what's it expanding into? Nothing. Now, you think it's expanding into the room, but that's because you've embedded the two-dimensional surface of the balloon into a three-dimensional room. If the two-dimensional surface of the balloon was all there was, and I put dots on it, they'd all be moving apart, when I blew it up, and, the, and nothing would be getting closer to anything else, but it wouldn't be expanding into anything. That's if, if the two-dimensional surface is all there is. If our universe is a closed two-dimensional, three-dimensional universe, the same thing is true. Or it could be infinite. And similarly, if I have an infinite rubber bed sheet, and I stretch it, it's okay. Good. <laughs> I'll, start, I'll take someone from this side. We'd is there a connection between dark energy and dark matter? And the answer is not that we can tell. Dark matter, we think we actually, they're relatively conservative and simple ideas about what the dark matter is. Every time we try and explain the standard model and the Higgs and the stuff we see at the Large Hadron Collider, it turns out that we, we predict other particles should be discovered there as well. And those other particles are very good candidates for dark matter. So we don't have to go into wild speculation. Within the context of almost the standard model of particle physics, dark matter comes out naturally. In fact, it's very difficult to have a theory that doesn't produce dark matter. There are lots of candidates. Dark energy is completely inexplicable. It just, it, it, it defies everything we understand about quantum field theory, that empty space should have this small an energy. And so maybe there's a fundamental connection. And, and at some level, of course, if there is a theory that predicts it all, then there is a fundamental connection. But we can't see it. And that makes it exciting. Because as I, as I often say to people, especially creationists, um, you know, we, not knowing is exciting. In fact, the, if you're a theoretical physicist, the two most exciting states to be in are confused and wrong. And I'm often in both. Because that means there's stuff to learn. That means there's something we learn. And that's another huge difference between science and religion. Science has made progress. Yeah? Yeah. Me too. <laughs>
Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm a big fan of his. Well, look, I mean, the, the question is, how do I find talking to philosophers? And, and there are, you know, kids in the room, so I won't, I won't say explicitly. But um, uh, no, the answer is, look, uh, uh, philosophical speculation is interesting. We all do it naturally. But, and, and I've tried to say this politely, but it doesn't come across that way, that it has no impact on science. Philosophy has no impact on science. None, zero. Physicists don't read, they don't know how to spell philosophy. They don't read philosophers, they don't read Popper, they don't read Kuhn. They, I, I mean, I did, but I learned my, if you wish, I learned the philosophy of physics from Feynman. I learned it by emulating physicists. And so these questions are quite interesting, and reflection about the ideas I've given you is something you'll all do, because you're all philosophers in a sense. And so certainly what science does is give, is give the underlying understanding of nature that we can reflect about. But we don't learn about nature by thinking about it. We just don't. We learn about it by looking at it. And so, um, you know, one can talk about, and one can argue about whether the nothingness that I've described is really non-existence. And you can have those arguments, but I don't give a damn about those arguments. I care about how the universe evolved. And if my nothingness isn't their nothingness, who the hell cares? I certainly don't. Um, I'll take, what, two more questions? Is that okay? Yeah, okay, good. No, no. I have lots of my, I should say, there are lots of friends of mine who are philosophers. I'm here at the New College of Humanities, run by one of my great friends, Anthony Grayling, who's a philosopher. And so I have many friends who are philosophers. I just wouldn't want my daughter to marry one. No. Um, but, uh, um, okay, let's see. Let me pick, uh, I should come back here. You look like you have a good question. Is it a good question? Good. How close are we to a theory of everything? Well, it's a, it's a question that I can't answer. And the answer is, I have no idea. Um, I have no idea if it's around the corner or not. Because the thing about ideas is you don't know when they're going to come up. With experiments, you can have an idea. We built the Large Hadron Collider. We knew there'd be something happening this year. But maybe the idea, maybe the key idea that's going to resolve these problems is something that she's got in her head right now. And she has to go to the next grade like next year before she gets it. Okay? So I don't know. I am skeptical that we're anywhere near close. I'm not even sure there is a theory of everything. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll quote Richard Feynman, who I wrote a book about, and who said it doesn't matter. You know, I, I agree. I'm like Feynman. We just want to learn more about the universe. Maybe it's an infinite onion. Every time we peel back a layer, there's another layer and another layer. And you might say, what, why, what's the point? And the answer is because we want to learn more. And the point is, it's enjoyable. And maybe I'll end with this, because it, one of my favorite myths is the myths of Sisyphus. And who, of course, as you know, was doomed for all eternity to roll a, a rock up a, up, up a mountain. And then just when he got to the near the top, the rock would fall down, fall down. But just like Camus, I believe Sisyphus was smiling. Because that it's the search that makes the whole thing worth it. It's the effort. It's the mystery, it's the adventure, and having the answer is not as exciting as searching for it. Thank you very much.